Well, good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 John, which providentially comes after 1 John. And um, we spent five months in 1 John, the Apostle John's first letter. Apostle John is also the one who wrote the Gospel of John, but these are three shorter letters that he wrote to the church. And it was a joy to spend those five months together in 1 John. So this morning, we'll look at the first half of his second letter, 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, before Jesus was crucified and risen, he warned his disciples of what would happen after he ascended to heaven. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Well, it didn't take long for that prophecy to come true. Less than 60 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, the apostles found themselves writing letters to protect believers and their churches from heretics and heresies. Second and third John are among those. 
These are short personal notes from the Apostle Paul, the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus. John writes this second letter to an unnamed Christian woman, warning her to beware of letting false teachers into her home. He wrote his third letter to a man named Gaius, encouraging him to practice hospitality toward true believers and faithful preachers who preach the gospel according to God's word. So you could say 2 John is about closing your doors to false teachers, and 3 John is about opening your doors to faithful teachers, biblical teachers. Both letters have a balance of truth and love. Both letters deal with those particular virtues. Therefore, we're going to keep 2nd and 3rd John together in this little series. And this morning, we're going to think about 2nd John in particular, verses 1 through 6. And the theme is, commit to walking in both truth and love. That's what God wants from us this morning. He wants us to be committed to walking in both truth and love. Now, 2 John continues one of the key themes of 1 John, that is, being born of God, that is, being a a true Christian produces an inner change. Uh, It is a work of God, whereby the Holy Spirit gives us new birth through the gospel and begins this work of transformation. And one fruit of that transformation is love for other believers. This is one chief evidence, John teaches of the presence and ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. John's second letter, though, is also about truth. It's about protecting the truth and and guarding the truth and protecting the church from heresies and heretics. So both Jesus and his apostles warned about heresies that would come from within the professing church. They wouldn't be coming primarily from outside of the church, but they would be powered from within the church. As we saw more than once in 1 John, that that reality, that theological dangers rarely come from outside the church, but from within, just as Paul had warned the elders of Ephesus where he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says, from among you, these fierce wolves will come. The Holy Spirit compelled the Apostle Peter to warn us of the same, where he writes, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. For this reason, the Apostle Paul warned the young pastor Timothy 
to keep the preaching of God's word as the central priority of the church. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now notice how Paul sets that up for Timothy. He says, you are called to preach the word. I'm charging you to preach the word, but I want to remind you that as you preach the word, you are preaching in the presence of God, and you are preaching in the presence of the one who is the judge of the living and the dead, and who is going to come in all of his glory to set up his kingdom. That's an interesting thought. And the first three chapters of the book of Revelation give testimony of this, that the primary one in the audience of a worship service is Christ. He is the one in Revelation 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches. He is the one who is walking among the churches. He's the one who's walking among the people. And so through the Holy Spirit, there's a very real sense in which Christ is present with us when we gather. That puts a great weight of responsibility upon my shoulders that I feel. I want to preach a sermon that doesn't necessarily make all of you happy, but I want to preach a sermon that Christ would be pleased with because he's in the audience today, if you want to call it an audience. There's an audience of one when we gather on Sunday mornings, and it is the Lord himself. And so Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready at every time to preach the word in season, that is, when people love it, out of season, when people don't love it, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preaching the word requires faithfulness to God, but it requires spiritual discipline and fruit and growth in patience and teaching. Because Paul says to Timothy, the time's coming when people won't want to listen to sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There will come a time, Paul says, that people on a wide scale will be looking for churches that will tell them what they want to hear not necessarily what they need to hear. And it's our calling and our responsibility to stay true to the word and let God be the one who sovereignly takes care of our growth and fruitfulness. But Paul's point there in that passage is that the faithful preaching of God's word protects a church from subtle heresies. Because he, he goes on to say then that not only is this time coming when people will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit what they want to hear, but they will then turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The chief reason followers of Christ wander off into myths is because they depart from the word. They start listening to the wrong voices. 
listening to the wrong counsel, following the wrong doctrine. In contrast, when a church's Sunday service becomes a self-help pep rally, that is in contrast to the faithful preaching of God's word, if Sunday morning is all about having a self-help pep rally, uh, instead of the whole church gathering once a week to feast together on Christ-centered biblical truth, the door then cracks open for man-exalting teachings, which are always Christ-diminishing. This modern method naturally leads a church to become a self-help social club whose goal is to be sure that we all feel good about ourselves all of the time. But if not repented of, this will lead a church away from the truth, away from the gospel, away from love for Christ. By the way, that's also why Josiah so carefully chooses the songs that we sing together and screens the theology of those songs because one of the ways we learn theology is in the songs that we sing. And just as Christ is listening to my preaching every Sunday morning, so he is listening to our singing And we want songs that lift up and glorify our Savior. It would be foolish for me to strive by the grace of God to preach God's word week after week than to be surrounded with songs that undermine that. That would be foolish. And that's why the Apostle Paul exhorts us in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I appreciate the way that uh, Josiah led us in that new song this morning and reminding us that we're singing those songs to one another. There's a horizontal dimension in our worship. We sing our songs primarily to God, but we also sing them to each other. And perhaps as we learn that new song about times when we are in the valley and, and we need the Lord's comfort and assurance and his promises, maybe you're not in a valley today, but perhaps the person next to you is. And perhaps their valley is so deep They were having a hard time singing that themselves, but they got strength from you singing about the promises of God. And that's just the way it works as we gather together. I mean, we only get all of you here together in one place for maybe an hour and a half a week. And what are we gonna feed you? Well, my goal is to be a good chef and to feed you a good meal something that you can feast on, that your soul will be nourished by, meat to chew on until we meet again, and milk that maybe seeps down into the crevices of your heart, reminding you of how deeply you are loved by God and cherished by the Savior and strengthened by the Holy Spirit to to energize you to fight your battle against sin, but also to comfort you in all of your suffering. 
God uses his word in amazing ways. I mean, think about it. If you only had one time for your whole family to sit down at the table together to eat a meal, what would you serve them? Would you have White Castle deliver a box of pretend hamburgers? (laughs) Or would you pull a pot roast out of your freezer? and slice up a bunch of vegetables and make a sweet something to cap it all off at the end. Because that's what sound teaching does for us. Sound doctrine nourishes our souls while false doctrine starves God's people. That's why Paul exhorts Titus this way, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound, or that word could be translated healthy, doctrine. Healthy teaching that feeds your soul and helps you to grow in the Lord. Now, why is all of that important to us diving into Second John this morning? Well, you need to understand that during the time that John wrote this second letter, itinerant preaching had become a very popular mode of ministry in the early church. And by itinerant preachers, I mean uh, preachers who travel from place to place, preaching the gospel and teaching the word, in contrast to pastors and elders who settle down in one place for a long period of time. Throughout church history, God has used itinerant preachers to spread the gospel and to spread the word of God to build up churches. But one of the dangers of itinerant preachers is that it's easy for them to function without accountability because they travel from place to place. There's rarely a church family or a council of elders who can observe their life and and their character and see if it is in keeping with the doctrine of Christ. It can also be difficult to monitor their doctrine as they travel from place to place. And uh, we've seen this dozens of times over the past few decades, haven't we? In world-famous preachers with high-profile ministry, huge followings, multi-million dollar travel budgets, they're hard to hold accountable No one knows them well enough to to call out patterns of sinful behavior. No one hears them teach in one place long enough to connect the dots of what their theology actually is. And they can often shift in their theology, progressively moving away from sound doctrine toward Heresy. So the Spirit compels John to warn believers to guard the truth. Look at verse 9 and 11 again. 9 to 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. He's talking about these itinerant preachers. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. In other words, don't open your home to heretics. 
Whereas in 3 John, he's going to say, be hospitable, open your home to these faithful traveling Bible preachers, care for them, meet their needs, but don't let the heretics into your house because if you greet them, you take part in their wicked works. William MacDonald gives this warning. We should give no cooperation whatsoever to a person who is spreading error regarding the person of our Lord. That's the warning there. But John also calls us to keep love and truth together because it best reflects the nature of God, our Savior. So that's our big idea this morning. Truth and love are inseparably united in God and therefore both should be evident in our everyday walk. And before John exhorts us to keep both truth and love active in our lives, he reminds us of how these qualities are inseparably united in the nature of God. We who are born of God should reflect him accurately. He says in verse one, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. The elder is John who's, who's in the older period of his life, his older season of life, you might say. And, and he is now warning and commending this woman. She's called the elect lady. She's an unnamed Christian lady who is one of God's elect. That is, according to Ephesians 1, she is chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And as such, the Spirit of God then writes this letter to all of us who know Christ. Evidence of this is the frequency throughout this letter of the second person plural. So it's not just for this woman, but it's for everyone who will read this letter from the apostle. So it may have been received by one woman, but it was read and applied by all believers everywhere. So in these first six verses, we see two key truths. Number one, God's eternal nature demonstrates both truth and love. God's eternal nature is filled with both truth and love. Look at verse one. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us Forever. Why is the truth of God with us forever? Because it is part of his nature. And God's love and truth abide in us because we have become partakers of the divine nature. When we were born of God, as we learned in 1 John, we received the seed of God, the life of God planted within us. We are partakers of the divine nature. This divine nature has truth and love inseparably united. Not one or the other. God is not either truth or either love. He is both all of the time. So the new heart that we receive at conversion is from God. When we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we receive this new nature from God. And the truth then will be with us and in us forever. 
Well, think for a moment with me. How are both love and truth evident in God's nature? First, notice that God's love comes to us in truth. God's love comes to us in the realm of truth. Uh, Truth and doctrine, those two words are used eight times in this little letter. I mean, 13 verses. And five times you're going to find truth and Three times you are going to find words related to doctrine. So God's love comes to us in truth. God's love comes to us in the truth of Christ. It comes to us according to the truth of Scripture. It comes to us through the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. So God's love is not some mushy-gushy sentimentalism. It is action that is motivated by his kindness and grace toward us in Christ. God's love is powerfully showed in the giving of his son to fulfill the requirements of divine justice. In other words, God didn't say, well, I love you so much, I'm just going to turn my eyes and not look at your sin. Instead, he said, I love you so much, I'm going to send my son. He is going to bear the penalty of your sin, and I'm going to look away from him while he's on the cross so that in him I may welcome you into my family. God's love comes to us in truth. God sent his son to save us from our sin. Our sin had to be punished according to the measurements of God's truth or we could not become recipients of his love. Does this make sense? You must keep these together because we are living in a culture that wants to separate the two, wants to separate truth and love and you can't do that if you're going to be faithful to who God is and who our calling, what our calling is in Christ. The only one who could save us is God himself. He's the only one. And so Jesus, the Son of God, is the perfect embodiment of truth. Listen to how Jesus is described in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. But God's nature is also seen in that his truth comes to us in love. So not only does God's love come to us within truth, but God's truth comes to us in love. Look at verse three. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and Love. God's truth comes to us in the midst of grace. Grace. The outpouring of favor that does not belong to us, that we don't deserve, but it's poured out from God because of Christ. Mercy. God withholding from us the judgment that we deserve because Jesus already endured it. And peace, 
the peace that we sang about earlier. He is our peace. Jesus made peace on the cross through his blood. And we now can have peace with God through faith in him. All of this flows out of this heart of love that God has for us. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God reminds us that God is a God of truth. But it is in his love, while we were still sinners, still his enemies, that he is the one who took the initiative to reach out to us. So God's salvation flows from his heart of love. He willingly sacrificed his own son, who is truth, because of the greatness of his love for you and me. God satisfied, think of it this way, God satisfied the demands of his own justice through the greatest act of love the world has ever seen or will see. So God's love comes to us in truth. God's truth comes to us in love. There's a second truth in today's passage, second key truth, and that is our nature should demonstrate both love and truth, our new nature. God's eternal nature demonstrates both truth and love, and so should our new nature. The Lord Jesus is the embodiment of truth and love. And therefore, all who know him should strive to grow in this beautiful balance. As Titus 2.10 says, we should walk in love and truth so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that our our lives should be so filled with both love and truth that our lives, our character, the way that we treat people should adorn the gospel, should dress it up nicely. That's what adorn means. When you go to a wedding, you don't pull out the sweatsuit that your wife gave you last Christmas, right? You adorn yourself. Why? Because you're there in honor of the bride and the groom. We are to adorn our lives in such a way that when people see us and they interact with us, they're not impressed by only truth or only love, but they're impressed with a growing balance of here's a person who knows the truth and is confident of the truth and yet loves. That's what our world needs. 
That's what the world has always needed. And that's why Jesus came, full of truth and love. The Son of God did not come to this earth only full of truth and bash in the heads of everyone who was in error. Nor did he come only in love and ignore the issues of truth. He came in both. And so should we. What does this mean? Well, it means walking in truth includes walking in love. Walking in truth includes walking in love. In other words, you can't say you're walking in truth. I'm walking in the truth of Christ. If you are not also growing in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Look at verses 4 and 5. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were, were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. John says, I am delighted and rejoicing to see you and your spiritual offspring walking in the commandment of the Father. But what is the commandment? To love. So walking in truth means walking in love. It includes walking in love. John defines walking in love by what Jesus calls the new commandment. You might remember this from from 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, where we learned this. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he says, it's, it's not a new commandment, but it's an old commandment. At the same time, we're calling it a new commandment. Why? Because in the gospel, through the new birth, we now have the power within us to obey. But God's always commanded his people to love one another. But it's new in the sense that salvation in Christ makes this love now possible. Loving fellow believers is a new commandment because we now have the power from the Holy Spirit to fulfill it. Uh, Look with me at at Revelation chapter 2. I want to draw your attention to the Lord Jesus' evaluation of two particular churches. He actually uh, gives letters or dictates letters to John to write to seven different churches. I just want to call your attention to two of them to indicate again that the will of God, the will of our Savior, is that we would be filled with both truth and love. Look at Revelation 2, 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's, that's Jesus from, from chapter one. So the angel is the messenger of the church in Ephesus. Most people believe it's, it's probably the lead leader, the lead teacher. And, and Christ is giving this message. 
And he says in verse two, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduringly, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. In other words, he's saying to the church at Ephesus, you are willing to fight for the truth. You are filled with truth. But, verse four, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So the believers in the church in Ephesus were willing to fight for the truth, but they lacked love. Lack of love for Christ, which resulted in lack of love for others, which reminds us that God expects us to walk in love and truth. So walking in love includes walking in the truth. Walking in truth includes walking in love, and walking in love includes walking in truth. Look a little bit later. Same chapter, Revelation 2. Here, the church at Thyatira, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. So, I love your love, Jesus says. I love your love, but this I have against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Jesus says, I love your love. But what I don't love is that you tolerate false teachers. And he gives just one example of this ungodly false teacher who's named Jezebel. It's hard to know if that was her actual name or if she was just so much like the Old Testament Jezebel that that just seems to be the best nickname for her. Look back at at 2 John, look at verse 6. And this is love. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. This is love, John says. What is love? Obedience. (laughs) What's the definition of love? Obedience to God. We cannot walk in love if we are not walking in the truth of obedience to the word of God. 
We don't want to be like the church at Thyatira where we have lots of love, but we lack doctrinal commitment. We don't want to tolerate false doctrine, teaching that is not according to Scripture. But we want to demonstrate both truth and love as individuals and as a church. But a church is made up of individuals, so as we grow as individual believers in the balance of truth and love, so we as a church will grow. It's not something that can be dictated from the top down. Okay, now everyone is going to be balanced in truth and love. This is a work of the Spirit in all of us at the same time, such that then we become that kind of church that Jesus comes and he worships with us and he says, I love the love here. And I love the exaltation of truth. And here is a place I will dwell happily. So how has the Lord spoken to you this morning? Perhaps you're one of those who is very zealous for truth, but you don't have much grace for other people. Perhaps you're cold and harsh even. Jesus says you need to repent of your lack of love. You need to remember how gracious and forgiving and patient that God is toward you. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of love in you. And you need to abide in the gospel and let the security of who you are in Christ loved by God just spill over into how you love others. Or perhaps you're one of those who abounds in love but your commitment to biblical truth is shallow. Biblical truth does not define your version of love. You need to repent. You need to repent of your lack of steadfastness in truth. You need to be grounded firmly in the gospel and the doctrine of Christ and you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you courage to stand for truth but also that you would fear God more than you fear other people in their response to what you believe. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this year, we need to pray for each other the way Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that we would grow in love, but that love is a discerning love. It's a love that's centered on Christ so that we grow in both areas of truth and love. Let me pray for you. And as I pray for you, know that I'm praying for myself and Make this your heart's prayer for yourself and, of course, for us as a church together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, do this work in us. Jesus, continue to help us to see the glories of your love toward us. And Holy Spirit, point us to Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of truth and love. And so help us to become more like him, Lord, for we cannot do it ourselves. This is a transformation that we need you to accomplish in us. We pray through the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ.